once someone tries to murder you and put a knife in your chest, you just can't look at the world the same way. This is Code 3, the Firefighters Podcast. Now, here's your host, Scott Orr. That's right, and I will not let Parkinson stop me. Thank you for joining me again here on Code 3. This is the show for and about firefighters. We're informing and entertaining members of the fire service, just like you, from coast to coast. Our show today is about an attack on a firefighter. Ben Vernon is a firefighter paramedic in San Diego. He works at one of the busiest stations in town, dealing with dozens of runs on his shift. Most of them are responses to drunks, drug users, and similar patients who live downtown. Ben thought he was used to these run-of-the-mill calls, until the day he found himself on the wrong end of a knife. And Ben Vernon joins me now to tell us that story and to tell us the aftermath. Thanks for being with us on Code 3 today, Ben. Thank you for having me, sir. Before we get into the actual incident, tell me a little bit about what your firehouse is like. My incident happened at Fire Station 4 in downtown San Diego in the Gaslamp District right across from Petco Park. It's the oldest station in our department, uh, built pre-World War II. Uh, It is one of my favorite firehouses in our department. Downtown stations, all of them in the heart of the city, typically are running 80 to 90% medical aids. Um, Station four where I was at was the heavy rescue station. So we were on a heavy rescue rig and we responded anywhere in the city to the the gnarliest calls you know if it was a water rescue or a tunnel collapse or a bridge collapse or someone was stuck on the side of a building they sent us to go get them so uh, it was an exciting firehouse to be at a very senior house Uh, you have to have a lot of time on the job to get there so i was very happy to be at station four very proud of uh, where i was at in my career so there was nothing unusual about your run on june 24 2015. it was a typical call at 4 p.m on a wednesday it was a medical aid for an intoxicated male downtown at the trolley stop and engine four the busiest engine company in the city runs about seven thousand calls a year we had already run this kind of call 10 times by 4 p.m. on Wednesday, and this was our third time at the trolley stop. So to say that this was the most routine call uh, is an understatement. I could have probably run this call in my sleep. What we didn't know, though, at this call, there was a bystander who kept interfering with the trolley security guards on scene. And when we arrived, trolley security guards and this bystander were they had almost come to blows. They had almost started fist fighting. We didn't know that when we showed up. And so we went about our normal routine, checking on our intoxicated male. Now, do these trolley security guards typically call police when they have a problem or do they handle it themselves? Probably a mix of both. The trolley security guards are 
are heavily armed. They carry firearms, handcuffs, pepper spray, uh, batons. But they, you know, even if they put someone under arrest, they don't have a holding facility. So oftentimes they're calling PD to transport the person that they've arrested. Most of the times, though, they don't like to get hands-on and they don't get physical with people. If anyone is causing problems for them, they usually will just call PD. On this day, they had called PD, but you know our, our police department, probably like every police department across the country, is short-staffed and undermanned, and this call didn't really make it high on the hierarchy for them to drop what they were doing and, and come right away. So even though PD had been called, they had not arrived yet. So now you're at the scene with your victim. You've got this third party who's causing problems with security. What happened next? When we first arrived, I actually took a turnover from uh, the bystander. <clears throat> I call him Stabby because um, he ends up almost murdering me with a knife. I took a turnover from Stabby, and he... You know, we had a pleasant exchange. He left the scene, or so I thought. What I didn't know is as I had uh, started working with my patient, an intoxicated male, Stabby came back into the scene and started back up arguing with the trolley security guards. At one point, my captain engaged him and said, hey, you need to leave us be. You know, please step back. Give us a space to work. And Stabby got in my captain's face and, and put his finger in his chest and was yelling at him. And my captain pushed him back to give us space, and he tripped over a park bench, and that's what ignited this fight. And so Stabby gets up after he'd been tripped. He he starts attacking a security guard and, and assaulting him and punching him in the face. I saw that. I saw. I I didn't I didn't know that you know he was angry. I didn't know that he had been fighting with twelve security guards prior to our arrival. I didn't see my captain push him over. All I heard was a fight break out behind me. I turn around and, and I see Stabby punching a security guard in the face. So I jumped in to protect the security guard. That was my mindset. I was in a rescue mode. I wanted to save the trolley security guard who was being beaten up. And so I broke up the fight. I got in between the two people and I pushed them apart. And I tried to calm the situation and talk, talk everybody down and figure out what was going on. And that's when Stabby pulled a knife and attacked me. He stabbed me multiple times, um, once in the flank, missing my kidney. He stabbed me once in the chest, broke my rib, punctured my lung, and then he went for my head. Uh, luckily, he missed. It, the knife went through my hair, but it, he didn't get me in the skull like he was hoping for. But this guy with the knife, stabby as you hauled him, turned out to me no ordinary drunk. What did you find out about him later? Stabby, I found out later, was a uh, an ex-felon, and he had learned how to shank someone prison style. And so it wasn't till much, much later that I uh, showed a video of me getting stabbed to a bunch of Department of Corrections officers. And they recognized immediately his skill set and told me, hey, this guy, he, he prison shanked you. And, and, it, and they showed me a video of actually a, a prison guard who'd been stabbed. And he, he was actually going for places that a, a body vest would not protect. So he was very, very lethal, very scary individual. And I'm very lucky to be alive. 
How bad were your injuries? Yeah, life-threatening. Um, luckily, he missed my kidney by an inch. He severed a nerve in my back, which hasn't had too much deficit, which has been nice. But when he stabbed me in the chest, he broke my rib and punctured my lung. That turned into a hemoneumothorax. So I had air and blood trapped in the pleural space. And as we all know in the EMS field, uh, if you do not treat that, that can turn into a tension pneumo and become lethal. Luckily, I was taken to the hospital quickly and given a chest tube. They emptied the air and blood out of the pleural space and reinflated my lung. So it was uh, as close as I'd like to get to death. Let's back up for a second. What was your attitude toward firefighters who complained about stress before this incident? You know, before my injury, I'm a fire medic. I've got eight years of experience. I'm on the heavy rescue team. I work for a big city department downtown at one of the most elite stations on our job. I'm pretty cocky and egotistical and think I'm pretty hot stuff. And if anybody had come to me and said that they were having, you know, mental health issues, I would have told them to suck it up, you know, say, lace your boots up, you know, what, what are you complaining about? This is what we signed up for. And so I definitely would not have been compassionate uh, toward my fellow firefighters who were having mental health issues. Right. But all that changed after the attack. What psychological effects did you suffer? After my injury, I was heavily medicated on uh, different opiates. I was sent home. They, I was stayed three days in the hospital. They reinflated my lung. They pulled the chest tube out, stitched me up, sent me home. And my first thought was when the stitches come out and I'm in no more pain, I'm going to be back to work. This is going to be easy. It wasn't until... 10 days after my injury, when I stopped taking the pain medicine, that the PTSD symptoms started. And they first manifested uh, that first night uh, after I stopped taking all the pain meds. Um, I had the most surreal, un uh, it just the most terrifying um, night terror. And, and in my dreams, I'm fighting this guy in my sleep. He's stabbing me multiple times, but I'm ripping him apart with my teeth. I'm I'm chewing his face off, and as blood is squirting into my mouth, I, I wake up screaming, covered in sweat, and I can taste blood in my mouth. And that that started a whole series just every night for for weeks on end, nightmares. Um, and that was that was a real wake up call for me. I realized that physically, though I may have been healing. Mentally, I was in a really bad place. I'll be back with more right after this. Every day, you put your life on the line to protect our families, friends, communities, cities, and our nation. Federal Resources knows the dangers you encounter daily. Whether it's fire, hazmat, or the more recent opioid threats, we're here to support you, protect you, and help train you for your next mission. You're looking out for everyone else. Let us look out for you. Federalresources.com. This attack obviously had some serious repercussions. How did it affect your marriage, for example? It was not good. First, you know, I, I, I had to get 
a sponge bath while I had stitches. I couldn't uh, get wet. And so my wife had to sponge bathe me. And if you want to just check your ego at the door, the fastest way to do that is to have to have somebody take care of you to that extent. So for me, that really hurt my ego that, that my wife had to take care of me that way. That was the first one. And then the second part is when I'm having nightmares and not able to sleep and I'm waking up in the middle of the night screaming, I'm scaring the crap out of my wife. And and so we really struggled through that. You know, there's there was nothing she could do for me to help me. And I wanted nothing to do with her because I was in my own world of hurt, you know, and, and in pain. And so, and I don't want to bring her into that. So we definitely had a huge divide between us for a long time. And it wasn't until somebody brought to my attention, you know, to ask her after, after I healed, you know, mentally, I got help, ask her how she's doing. And when I asked her how she was doing, she started crying and she had told me that she thought she had mentally prepared to get the call that I had been injured or killed in the line of duty. Um, and, and that was on her mind every day when I went to work for almost a decade. But to actually get that call was was harder than she expected. And it, it really affected her physically and mentally that, you know, she got the call from the chief of our department saying, you need to come to the hospital. You know, Ben has been severely injured and he's in the ICU. You know, you need to come down. She She thought she was prepared for that and she was not. Now, in the midst of all this, did your marriage stay solid or were you at some point worried that that was going to be the end of it? There's, there was time when that was a problem and I thought we might not pull through. So yeah, our relationship definitely struggled more than I realized. I I was so self-absorbed for a while that I didn't realize how close we were to not making it. Luckily, I was able to pull through mentally and, and get back to being as close to my normal self as possible. And it wasn't at that point when I re-engaged with my wife and realized how much she had been affected. And I think we have come a long way since my injury to being to restoring our relationship to the way it was before. So what did you do to deal with the psychological trauma? The first thing I I realized I needed help and I went looking for a psychologist to help me deal with the PTSD. And my first psychologist I went to uh, told me up front, he said, hey, I don't work with firefighters. I work with car accident victims. And I was so desperate for help, I I didn't care. I said, well, you know, I also work with car accident victims, so we should get along great. (laughs) But, But what happened was I started explaining my injury and what happened, and and his advice was just horrible. It was not helpful. You know, I, I told him that I was having nightmares. I was chewing this guy's face off in my sleep, and he said, well, if you're having trouble sleeping, just, just don't drink any coffee. And, yeah, just, I mean, the worst advice ever. And I told him my number one fear is if I went back to work too early, if any patient or bystander started getting combative that I would not be a good firefighter. I would just attack first and I would hit first. 
and I was afraid that I would I would lose my career because I would attack somebody that didn't want you know didn't deserve it. And he said, "Well, if you're feeling stressed, just don't go on any calls." <laughs> yeah, that'll do it. Sorry, Cap, I have to stay here today. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So uh, that was that was just a horrible experience. But luckily, I got good advice from a friend who would. Uh, recommended I go to a police psychologist, someone that understands first responders a little better. Now, and let so, me interrupt here. Did you even know there was such a thing? No, I didn't. <laughs> and, and of course, of course, there are different psychologists who specialize in different things, but I never knew that. And it didn't even occur to me that, that these guys would have different specialties. But of course there are. I mean, if you have a heart problem, you go to a cardiologist. And if you break your leg, you go to an orthopedist. So, and, and as I travel the country and I, I share my story, firefighters from all over the country tell me the same thing. Well, I went to a psychologist and they told me to stop drinking coffee. Or I went to a psychologist and I was describing a call and the psychologist couldn't handle it and started crying. And, and so, all, you know, of those of us that even attempt to actually see a pro, we have no idea that there are different specialties. And I just, I wish I could share that with everyone and say, hey, if you try psychology and the first person you try doesn't get it, don't give up, right? Don't quit. Find somebody else. And, and you will eventually find somebody that understands our culture, gets our sense of humor, you know, won't cringe when you describe a horrible call you've been on. So, yeah, I had no idea there were different psychologists. So you found one who specializes in first responders, and what did this person tell you? Well, right away when I met him, I knew he was the right guy because I, we shook hands in the lobby, and he said, hey, you know, why are you here? What can I do for you? And I said, well, a guy attacked me in the line of duty and almost murdered me. And his first question was, man, that's rough. How are your nightmares? And so he, he, knew, he knew you had nightmares. Exactly, before I even had to say anything. And just hearing that question, I almost started to cry because I, I, I knew that I'd found the right guy. And I remember this sense of relief that, oh, good, like someone can actually help me. And he said immediately, look, I can help you. Like, I can fix this. And, and we're going to do a treatment called EMDR. And I, I've never heard of EMDR. And so I just I learned so much from the police psychologist. I it, it's the reason I travel and the reason I'm doing these talks is because I want firefighters from all over the country to learn from me and they don't have to go through the same saga that I went through. A lot of them may not have had that helpful friend who tipped you off to the right kind of doctor. Exactly. Exactly. Tell me about EMDR. What is it and how does it work? So, so EMDR stands for Eye Movement desensitization and reprocessing and when he first explained it to me i thought he was trying to hypnotize me i was not a big fan i just stared at him for a while and i, I was uncomfortable um but it is a painless process and essentially what you do is he he stimulates both sides of your brain at the same time and, and by doing that like the original process was the doctor would wave his fingers back and forth in front of your eyes like a sobriety test. And your eyes track from the left side of your head to the right side of your head, you know, back and forth, back and forth like a cuckoo clock. 
And, and by doing that, when your eyes are moving back and forth, it's stimulating the left side of your brain and the right side of your brain. And so this doctor, he used these little, they're almost like little cell phones that vibrate. And so I would hold these little paddles in my hand and they would vibrate in my left hand and my right hand, left hand, right hand, and they would go back and forth and it would stimulate my brain both sides. And the way he described it, he said, firefighters and police and EMTs and medics have an uncanny ability when we go on calls to shut off the emotion side of our brain and activate just the logic, right? And we go into full business mode because when you run on a little kid or some horrible call, that's not the time to feel bad. And he said, so you shut off emotion and you go pure logic. And the problem with that is over time, over years, you get off balance and, and you have all this pent up emotion stored away that you can't get access to. And so by sitting in his office and holding these little paddles and they're vibrating, I'm activating the logic side of my brain and the emotion side of my brain. And so then he said, well, explain, you know, describe the call in detail to me. What happened on that call? And as I'm talking to him and explaining the call, I'm going through logic and emotion. And it, it helps kind of unlock the built-up emotion. And when I was done with him and this treatment, I felt better. I felt mentally, I felt better. I, it's hard to describe. I, it's so easy to do and, and painless, but the process is amazing at working through horrible calls we've been on. How long did you do that treatment or are you still doing it? I did it twice a week for about six weeks. A majority of the time I was trying to process the stabbing. I was, uh, you know, I had a lot of, of pent up emotion over that call. I was angry that I didn't see the fight coming. I was angry that I didn't react better. I was angry that my partner got stabbed trying to protect me. I was angry that once we were both stabbed, I couldn't fix us. Right. And, and we were both bleeding and I couldn't stop the bleeding. And I, I feel like, you know, the, the wheels came off the bus as a paramedic. I, I was panicked and I didn't do a good job. So I had a lot of built up anger and resentment. So that took, that took weeks to kind of work through. But once I did and I felt better, I actually stayed another week or two. And I wrote down all the calls in my career that have always bothered me. I had a little girl that seized to death and, and no amount of medication I gave could fix her. And I ran on a woman who'd been horribly gang raped and, and I did all I could, but you know, there was not much that she needed from me. And, and those calls, you know, those, all those pent up calls, I, I stayed another two weeks and I wanted to EMDR those calls. And so I did. And I'm telling you that I came back to work mentally stronger than I have ever been than before my incident because I was lighter and I had offloaded all of those horrible calls in my mind and, and felt great. So I don't go anymore. I don't feel I need the treatment, but I'll tell you what I really like is that I don't have to carry any of these horrible calls with me. I feel like I've got an ace up my sleeve because right now if, if tomorrow I had to run on a dead child, I would just set up an appointment and go to EMDR later this week so that I wouldn't have to carry that call with me for the rest of my life. Do you know what I mean? 
I do, but are you cured now? I'm back to work. I'm mentally stronger than I was before. Now, I am a different person, and that was one thing that took me a while to kind of come into uh, acceptance. I am a different person. I am, I am much more cautious on scene. I'm much more cautious in public. I don't like having people behind me. I don't like when people get argumentative with me. Right, It gets my blood pressure up faster, and I'm quicker to fight. But the fact that I don't fight and don't hurt anybody is a sign that the treatment works. So, yes, I'm cured. I, but I would say that, you know, once someone tries to murder you and put a knife in your chest, it you just can't look at the world the same way. Does that make sense? It does. It's quite a story, and I'm glad you were here to tell it. Ben Vernon, thanks for talking with us today on Code 3. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. And we've put some more information on the attack, PTSD, and EMDR on our website at Code3Podcast.com slash attack. Check it out. Now here comes your trivia question. About how many firefighters and officers are on the job at FDNY? I'll have the answer right after this. If you've been thinking about making a monthly pledge to support Code 3, we have an even better reason for you to do it now. We've started a new subscriber-only benefit. It's called the Code 3 Bull Session. It's more material from some of our interviews. Interesting stuff that didn't make it into the regular show. But only patrons get to hear it. So head over to Code3Podcast.com slash support and make a pledge of $10 a month or more, and you'll get immediate access to the Bull Session. Don't miss it. Here's the trivia answer, and if you look this up on Google, you've cheated and shame on you. The FDNY has more than 11,400 firefighters and officers on the books, protecting the city's over 8 million residents. All right, that's it. That's all for this edition of Code 3. Thank you for listening. I'll be back next time with more. I'm Scott Orr, and until then, I'll see you later. Code 3 is a production of Enchanted Sky Media. To get in contact with us, visit Code3Podcast.com. And if you haven't subscribed yet, you should. Don't miss an episode. Find us at the Apple iTunes Store, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.